Amen. Let me invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning as we continue our study through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And we have made it to chapter 13. And um, I'm actually going to read part of a verse in chapter 12 that sets the stage for the truth Paul expounds, explains, declares in chapter 13. If you remember, in chapter 12, Paul is discussing the differences in gifts and what type of gift the Corinthians might have, they, they were wondering. Well, in chapter 12, verse 31, listen to what Paul says. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now here comes the more excellent way, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. We've probably all heard of the term an acid test. That was a test, a procedure that was oftentimes used by jewelers to determine whether or not their merchandise was real. What they would do is they would take their jewelry and they would place it in acid or place acid on it. And because acid would eat up all types of different metals except for gold, silver, and platinum, the jeweler would know that if the metal was eaten up by the acid, what they had was a fake. It wasn't authentic. It wasn't real. And so throughout time, when people test the authenticity of other things, they oftentimes refer to that test as an acid test, just as a way of figuring out if something is real, if it is genuine, or if it is a fake and a phony. 
Well, do you know the Bible gives us an acid test when it comes to our Christian faith? It has a true, blue, genuine way of determining whether or not you truly believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the million-dollar question is, what is the test? Some might say the test might be a miracle. If you're a miracle worker and you can perform miracles, that is the acid test of whether or not you believe and trust in Jesus. But it's not. Some might say that it's speaking in tongues. Certainly those at Corinth would have said that, that if a person can speak in an ecstatic tongue, then that is evidence that the Spirit is working in their life and that they are genuinely saved. But Paul would say no. Some would say, if you have the ability to heal the sick, imagine someone has cancer and you heal them of that cancer. Imagine someone had their limb lopped off and you had the ability to touch them and heal them and a new arm or a new leg grows spontaneously in that spot. Some would say that would be evidence that you have true faith in Christ. But Paul would say absolutely not. In fact, The simplest, most profound way to determine whether or not one's faith is genuine is this. Love. Love is the test that determines whether or not our faith is real and genuine or whether it is fake and phony. In fact, Jesus is the one who gives us the test. Brother Teddy read it in our scripture reading this morning. When Jesus, after having washed the disciples' feet the night before his crucifixion, says to the disciples, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. And here's what he says. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm giving the world the right to judge your faith. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. John, who was in that crowd that night, picks up on that truth later when he writes to believers in 1 John. And he tells us this glorious truth in 1 John 3, 4. He says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we have love for the brothers. Whoever does not love his brother abides in death. John says our love life is an indication of our salvation because we know we've passed from death unto life because we love the brothers. But it could also be an indicator of a person's condemnation because if we don't love, John pulls no punches. He says it's an indicator that we abide. That is, we remain. We are in a state of condemnation. So, instead of looking at Miracles performed. Instead of looking at gifts received. Instead of looking at these spectacular signs of what faith is in a person's life. We would do well today to turn the microscope inwardly into our heart. To examine our love and to ask ourselves, Does my love truly give evidence of my faith in Christ? Now, We have to say something here about the context of 1 Corinthians 13 because we sometimes pluck this glorious chapter out of its context. We bring it up out of 1 Corinthians, we put it on plaques, we we put it in pictures and we hang it on the wall and we forget the true context 
of this great love chapter. A.T. Robertson said that chapter 13 comes like a sound of a sweet bell between the clanging noises of chapter 12 and chapter 14. When we looked at chapter 12, you get the sense that the believers at Corinth are, are divided over spiritual gifts. Pride, boasting, arrogance, envy, jealousy, even self-pity fills the hearts of the believers at Corinth as they're comparing their spiritual gifts with one another. As a result, division has taken over the congregation. Chapter 14, we will get into it next week when we'll see the confusion and the chaos that has taken place in Corinth over the misuse of the gift of tongues and how that it was causing upheaval in the church. So much so that Paul had to remind them that God is not the author of confusion. This confusion is not from God. So you have division in chapter 12. You have confusion in chapter 14. And right in the middle of both, Paul dips his pen in golden glory inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and he gives us the most profound <laughs> declaration of love that you will ever read in God's holy writ. David Garland said, Paul reminds the Corinthians that love, not spiritual gifts, is the marrow of their Christian existence. And so what I want to do today is I want us to examine Chapter 13, I want us to look at what Paul says about love and why Paul calls it the more excellent way than all the other gifts in chapter 12 and in chapter 14. What is it that's so special about love? Well, Paul's going to tell us three things about love. He's going to show us three characteristics of love, true biblical love that I pray is characteristic of our love as well. First, he tells us this, that love is preeminent. It's preeminent. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that love's superior to all things. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, I will show you still a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is the way of love. More excellent than any gift you'll ever receive, more excellent than any miracle anyone would ever perform, is the love that exists in a believer's heart that is shown to other people. It is the greatest. Now, here's what Paul's going to do in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul's going to engage in what we call hyperbole. Uh, what is hyperbole? He's going to speak with exaggerations. Paul is going to use himself as exhibit A, and he's going to speak of himself as if he is the most spiritual Christian on the outside that ever lived. But he lacks one thing. He lacks love. And Paul's going to show us what someone who has every gift you could ever imagine looks like if they lack love. And he's going to show us this simple equation. It's not on the screen, but you need to burn it inside of your heart and inside of your mind. And here's the equation he shows us. He shows us this, that everything minus love equals nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. He does this by telling us this in verse 1, that love is more than what I say. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The Corinthians were so caught up in the gift of tongues, Paul starts here. 
And he says, listen, if you could speak in tongues, any tongue you want on the earth, and in matter of fact, if you could even speak with the tongues of angels. Now, what are the tongues of angels? Well, I doubt we're going to speak English whenever we get to heaven. So whatever dialect the angels are speaking, if you could speak with that tongue now, if I could do that, and I could speak any language on the planet today, and I could do it without love, he says I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you know my commentary on that? I'd sound like Justin trying to play the drums. That's basically what he is saying here, that it makes no beautiful noise. It just makes a racket. So love is more important than what I say. So Paul shows us that tongues minus love, just a bunch of noise. Because love's more important than what I say. But also love's more important than what I have. Look in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I have to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Now listen, Paul's talking about someone here who has all prophetic powers. He's talking about someone here who, has, who understands all mysteries. He's talking about someone here who has all knowledge. There's not one question about the gospel you have that he can't answer. There's not one question about eschatology he can't get right. There is not one mystery when it comes to God, who he is, what he's like, what it's like to know him that he couldn't inform you of. And yet he says, if that's me and I don't have love, well, guess what I am? I'm nothing. And when it comes to faith, Paul says, if I have enough faith, to cast the mountains into the sea, to remove Everest from its base and cast it into the ocean. But I don't have love. I am nothing. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is saying, give me every gift that I've just mentioned. And if I have those gifts to the greatest degree, and yet I don't have love. I am absolutely nothing. So not only does he say tongues minus love is just a bunch of noise. He also says that all gifts minus love equals nothing, absolutely nothing, because love is more important than what I have. And then he says love's more important than what I do. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I delivered up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, now I want you to imagine that super Christian Paul here, I can not only speak with all the tongues of men and angels, and I not only have all knowledge and all understand all mysteries, and, and I have all faith and all prophetic powers. I've got all of that. Now I want you to see in me someone who has not an arrogant attitude. No, I'm somebody who has given not most of what I've got. I've given away everything I've got. I don't have one red penny to my name because I've given it all away to charities to help people who are sick, even maybe even given it to the church. And furthermore, I'm willing to deliver up myself to be a martyr, to die for what I say I believe in. But I just lack one little thing. And that one little thing is love. What would you say about me? Paul says, I'll tell you what to say about me. I gain nothing. In other words, what good is it? If I give away everything I've got, if I deliver up my body to be burned, and love is absent in my heart, then there is nothing good to be gained out of it. So Paul not only shows us, that tongues minus love is just a bunch of noise. 
All gifts minus love is nothing. He also shows us the sacrifice minus love has no gain to it. So here's the question we must ask ourselves today. As we understand that God hears what we say, graces us with what we know, and he sees what we do, we have to ask ourselves this. The one who knows the motivating factor of my heart, when he sees what I do, he hears what I say, what I say, and he examines what I have and how I use that. When he looks at my, the motivation of my heart, does he see love? Does he see that I do it out of a heart of love? When I teach a class or I preach a sermon, do I do it out of love or do I do it just out of a sense of obligation and because I've gone through the routine and I'm, I'm, I'm used to doing this? If I fix a meal for a sick church member or a family who's just lost a loved one, do I do it because that's what we're supposed to do because we're Christians? Or do I do it because I love that individual and I want to bring some type of comfort in any way that I can? When the offering plates pass by and we give, do we give because we're afraid our neighbor might look at us and see whether or not we put anything in? Do we give because we're just supposed to give? That's what we're supposed to do. Or do we give out of a heart of love? When we worship, do we worship God just because that's what Christians are supposed to do on the Lord's day? We gather to worship out of a sense of duty? Or do we worship God out of love, out of a desire, out of a, a longing to see Him and know Him and to elevate Him? Do we do it out of love? I pray that we do. But make no mistake. If you do everything to the nth degree as a Christian, and yet you lack love, then you are nothing, you have nothing, and you will accomplish nothing for the glory of God. And thus, Paul says, lay down every gift, lay down everything you can imagine. I'll take love above all of it because it is preeminent to everything else. Love is preeminent. But love is also practical. Now Paul's going to move out of the hypothetical. And now he's going to describe love to us. He moves from a life that's devoid of love. And now he's going to show us what life really is like when love is at the center of it. Now let me just make two quick observations before we get into this passage. In verses seven, 4 through 7, Paul's going to give us several descriptions about love. And there's just two quick observations. Again, won't be on the screen. You can jot them down on your notes that I want you to see about love, about the way he describes love. Number one, it's this. Every description of love he uses is a verb. It's a verb. It's either attached to a verb or it is a verb. All right? A verb is an action word. It's something that you do. And so Paul's telling us here that love is not passive. Love is active. Love is something that you do. It is something that you show to others. But also what I love is that every single description of love in this passage is in the present tense. It's not past tense. It's not something that happened 10 years ago, but it's something that is ongoing. Like the guy who married his wife and he quit no longer told her that he loved her they'd been married for about 15 years and she said honey why don't you tell me that you love me and he said I told you I loved you when I married you and if I change my mind I'll let you know well 
That doesn't work here. Paul is telling us that there's something about love that is continual. It's something about love that is ongoing. So what does he tell us about this ongoing, continual love and how it impacts and influences my life? Well, first he tells us in verse 4 that love has an inward influence. That is, love changes me on the inside. Look what he says. First, love is patient. Now, the King James, I like its translation just a little bit better because it seems to describe the word better. King James says, love suffereth long. In other words, it's patient with one another. It, it puts up with someone else. When you love someone, you put up with other people. Let me ask you something. What friendship can survive without a loving patience? What marriage can survive without loving patience? What church can survive without loving patience? You know what he's saying here? True love puts up with people sometimes. You just put up with them. Now, if you're honest, and I say there's just some people you just have to put up with, somebody's mug just flashed right in your face, right in your mind, and you know it. All right? So what does love do? Love is patient with people. But love also is kind, he says in verse 4. Kind just means that there's no cruelty there. There's a gentle spirit whenever their love is present. There, there isn't a meanness, as we would say it, in a person's spirit or in their heart whenever they have love. And then he tells us that love does not envy. Now, this is interesting because true love, Paul's telling us, brings contentment. Now, what type of contentment? I can look at your worldly blessings and I can be thankful that you were blessed even if I wasn't blessed as much as you've been blessed with worldly things. You know the difference between envy and jealousy? When I'm jealous of you, I want what you have. That's jealousy. But when I'm envious of you, I not only want what you have, I want you to lose what you have. Because there's just something about it I can't stand to see someone else blessed and prosperous, especially if I think I'm struggling. But Paul says, no, love doesn't work that way. No, love is not envious. It brings a contentment because when I love you, I am thankful when you are blessed. Then he says that love, it, it does not, it's not arrogant uh, and it does not boast. Now, what does that mean? It means this, that true love pushes out pride in a person's heart. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for boasting whenever true love is there. Because really, arrogance and boasting comes from a self-centeredness. It comes from a selfish type of desire, a focus, and a love. And Paul says, no, true love doesn't work that way. No, true love pushes that out of our hearts. And he's saying this, that true love never produces a braggart. That true love produces humility in a person's heart. So do you see what love does? Love shapes us inwardly. And as love shapes us inwardly, love also has an outward influence. It then, because it changes me on the inside, changes the way I treat other people. But how does it impact the way I treat other people outwardly? Well, he tells us that love is not rude in verse number 5. Now, this is interesting uh, because if we're honest, you know, sometimes Christians can be the rudest people on the planet. We really can be. Uh, I, and I even said one time that 
I wish Christians sometimes would change their clothes before they go eat after church on Sunday because sometimes I've seen it happen. They can be the, the, most, <laughs> the, 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 the most rude people in the history of the world. Why? I don't know why, but they're rude. We need not be rude people. Love should make us be, be, be nice, to be courteous to other people. Basically, what it means is this. Love produces manners in somebody. Have you ever been around somebody who always boasts, I just tell it the way it is? You know what I've noticed about people who boast about telling it the way it is? That's their excuse for being rude. They want to be able to say whatever it is they want to say, whether it is nice or loving or not, and then they get to say, well, I'm just being honest about it, and I just tell things the way it is. No, they're trying to make an excuse for being rude, being ill-mannered, and just being somebody nobody wants to hang around with, okay? And their heart is not filled with love. But he also says, not only is love not rude, he also says uh, in verse number 5, that it does not insist on its own way. In other words, love is not selfish. Whenever I treat someone else in a particular way, I do so putting them first, their desires, their wants, their need, what it is that they need more so than mine. And even this, love will even put someone's preferences above my own. That's hard. But yet, that's what love produces. In fact, Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. He says, just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not seeking my own advantage. Paul says, my desire in life, it is to please those around me, not to get an advantage from me. Where do you think Paul learned that from? Well, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you really think of other people as being more significant than you? Their wants, their desires, what it is they like? Well, love says, yes, I put them number one on my list, not down beneath my wants and my desires. And then Paul says, love is not irritable. What does that mean? It just means this. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Again, love is patient. And when love is patient, that means it is not easily provoked. A loving heart and a short fuse cannot coexist in the same person. So love is not irritable. Love is not resentful, he tells us in verse number 5. The word resentful is a bookkeeping term. It's an accounting term. And literally what he says is this is that true love doesn't keep a tally. It doesn't keep marks on how people have wronged them and what people have done to them. Now, have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been talked about? Has someone ever hurt you? Has someone ever crushed you? Has, has someone hurt you in a way that you can't describe it and, and, and you say something like this, I've marked this down and I'll never forget it. You ever done that? Do you know what you're doing? You're being resentful. You're being a spiritual accountant that says, here's what you've done. I've made a note of it, and I'm not going to forget it. Turn it a positive way. When Paul says love is not resentful, he's basically saying this. Love forgives. Love forgives. 
Can I remind you, we serve a Savior who, as he was dying on the cross, looks out, looks up into heaven, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if anyone would just say, well, that's just Jesus. I can't be like Jesus. I remind you that the first believer who died in the New Testament died in very much the similar fashion. When they were stoning Stephen to death, Stephen looked up into heaven, and what did he pray? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Don't hold it against them. Forgive them. True love forgives those who have wronged us, no matter how bad it hurts us. So love influences me inwardly, changes me inwardly, and that changes me outwardly as I deal with other people. But at the same time, love has an upward influence in verse number 6. Now, if God's love is active in my heart, changing me from the inside out and changing the way I treat others, it also changes my worldview. True love lines my worldview up alongside that of God's. Look what he says in verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Have you ever been around a parent who's got a wild child? And I mean they are wild and the parent seems to be the only person who knows it's not wild and disrupting everybody in the world. And they're meaner than a striped snake and, and the parent just loves that child so much they can't discipline that child. They can't, they can't, they dare not spank the child. They dare not try and discipline the child because they're just so, they just so love the child it hurts them too much. You know, my mom and dad always told me whenever, or mom did, dad, dad may have whipped me once. I don't remember it. Uh, I don't ever remember dad whipping me, to be honest with you. Mom, she's beat me to death throughout my life. And uh, they always told me this hurts me worse than it does you. I always want to say, well, let's change spots then. <laughs> if it does, if you really want me to hurt, <laughs> then let's change up. But, but what is true love? What are we saying as parents whenever we say something like that about our children? I just love them too much to do that. We're saying this. I'm mixed up when it comes to love because I think love overlooks wrongdoings. And he says it never does. True love never overlooks wrongdoings. God loves us. Does he overlook our wrongdoings? No. He chastens us as a loving father does his, his child. And so Paul is telling us this, that true love never rejoices at wrongdoings. What does it rejoice in? It rejoices in the truth. True love produces a love for God's truth, for what God loves, for what God desires. And when our hearts are in line with his love, it changes the way we view the world. It has an upward influence in our life. And then it has a forward influence in our life as well. Now, verse 7 provides us with a, a quick, weighty, fourfold description of love. And it shows us how love perseveres, how love continues. In fact, in the Greek, there's a, there's a Greek uh, adverb in the text. It could literally be translated always. When he says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Literally in the Greek, it says love always bears. Love always believes. Love always hopes. Love always endures. What's it mean? Well, he's telling us love bears all things. In other words, love never gets tired of supporting others. It bears all things. Love is an is a Aaron and a Hur holding up the hands of Moses, and they don't get tired doing it. 
It's a Barnabas who's willing to, to be second. It's a, someone who's willing to support someone, who's willing to be there for someone. No matter the time of day, no matter what, true love never gets tired of supporting others. It bears all things. And true love believes all things. In other words, true love never loses faith. Have you ever seen it in the eyes of a mother who's dealing with a, a son or a daughter who's, who's a drug addict? Whenever they talk about them, you sense the pain. You sense the hurt that it's caused. But at the same time, you cannot look into their eyes. And even if they say they've given up hope, there's still hope there that one day they'll get straightened up. You know why there's hope there? Because there's love there. And hope believes all things. Hope never loses faith. And then he says that or it, it believes all things, but hope or love also hopes all things. In other words, it doesn't lose hope. John MacArthur says the rope of hope has no end whenever love is there. And then he says it endures all things. In other words, it never ceases. It never ceases. It perseveres it goes through ups it goes through the downs it goes through the difficulties it goes through the trials and it remains you cannot kill true love and so as Paul gives us this description of love he's showing us that love changes us on the inside love changes the way we treat people on the outside love changes the way I think it lines me up with God and then Love causes me to be a person who will believe, who will endure, who will hope, and who will bear all things. Love changes me because love is practical. And then Paul says, it's not only practical, but love is permanent. In verses 8 through 13, Paul turns his attention to the future. And he's going to make a contrast between the now and the yet to come. And he's going to show us just how superior love really is by showing us that in the end, when the smoke is cleared and the dust is settled, one thing is going to be standing tall, and that is love. And here's what he shows us, that love will outlast other gifts. You see, love will not just last, it will outlast. It's going to outlast all other gifts because all gifts are temporary. All spiritual gifts are gifts that are given in this present evil age, and they one day will come to an end. Look what he says. Love never ends. As for prophecies, well, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. I wonder why Paul uses this triad. Why, why does Paul use these three gifts? I'll tell you why. Because that's what the Corinthians were elevating. Prophecy, knowledge, tongues. And Paul says, do you know what you've done? You have so focused your attention on spiritual gifts that are one day going to be vanquished. They are one day going to cease. They're going to stop. They're going to pass away. And you've forgotten the one thing that's going to last forever, and that is love. Now, let me say this. Paul's purpose in writing this is not to tell us when these gifts are going to pass away. But his purpose in writing this is just to tell us that they will one day pass away. And in order to prove that point, he uses three metaphors that show us that while we are in this present age, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And spiritual gifts operate in this present age as a reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. In fact, the 
comparison he makes is that of something that is partial with that which is complete. Look what he says in verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial would pass away. Paul says right now, we don't know everything. We don't understand everything. We're in a state of partiality, if you will. But there is coming a day when the complete arrives, and then that which is partial will vanish away. Speaking of the gifts. Then he uses the illustration of a child and a man. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What does that mean? Paul says right now the Corinthians are being like, not that the Corinthians are being like children, but the age in which we are in right now, where the spiritual gifts were operational, where where the Spirit has to give gifts to his church in order for them to serve him. They're like a child. And a child that is maturing, but nonetheless, a child. It's not fully mature. Not, not got their senses, uh, their abilities to be able to reason properly. No. But what is going to happen? There's going to come a day when the child's going to turn into a man. A fully mature adult. And Paul is saying, that day is going to come. And what happens to my childish immaturity? It passes away. The childish immaturity is a picture of where the Corinthians are at with spiritual gifts. But there's coming a perfect day. And then he uses the illustration of looking in a mirror in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. What's he saying here? He's saying right now, where we are at in this present evil age, where gifts are necessary, it's almost like staring at yourself after you've taken a hot, steamy shower in the mirror. Uh, You can see an outline, but you really can't see yourself. It's only after you open the door, you get some air in there, and the steam's gone, that you can look in the mirror, and you can see yourself fully. Well, Paul says right now, we're looking in that dim mirror. But then there's coming a day when... It's going to be clear and we'll be able to see and fully know and fully understand and know what's going on. Now, when is this time here? What is that perfect which is to come, which will change everything? Well, some say it's, it's, it happened with the canon of Scripture. I, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I think here's what he's saying. At the end of the age when Christ returns... The perfect is the state that he will inaugurate or consummate when he returns. Because what will happen when he returns? Well, when he returns, we'll receive glorified bodies. When he returns, we enter that state of perfection. When he returns, no gifts will be needed. When he returns, the impartial will be done away with. When he returns, the immaturity will be gone. When he returns, the the glass will be wiped clean and we will be able to see Clearly, but the main point Paul is making here is not to give us a debate about when gifts cease and and what the perfect is. The point Paul is making here, and don't forget it, is that every single spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has ever given to the church is a temporary gift. It's a loan. We will not have it when we enter into glory because we will not need it. We won't need it. And thus, love will outlast all of the gifts. 
And love will outlast all other graces as well. Verse 13, Paul says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now how in the world is love greater than all of these? Well, he tells us love's going to outlast faith. I think we would agree faith is important. We're a Reformed church. We believe in sola fide. That is, we are saved by faith alone. Faith alone, not by works that we have done, not by any deed that we would perform, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone, we are saved. Not only that, we believe that we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Scripture tells us that we walk by faith. Faith is vital. How in the world can Paul say that love is greater than faith? The writer of Hebrews defines faith in this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And it's the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. What will happen when that which is perfect has come? How is it that we live our life now? 2 Corinthians 5. For we live by faith, not by sight. But in that day, there shall be a great reversal. In that day, we will not live by faith, for we shall live by sight. You see, faith puts us on the road to heaven. Faith guides us along on our journey, and faith walks us up to the pearly gates, but faith is unable to walk through those gates with us because it is then sight shall take over, and thus faith, love is greater than faith. But what about hope? Well, Paul says love will outlast hope. You remember what Paul says in Romans 8? For we are saved by hope. But what a man sees, why does he hope for it? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Paul says again, like faith, there is an element of not seeing that produces hope. And yet when you see it, you no longer have hope You now have the reality of that with which you hoped, of that which you hoped for. And so too it is with our Christian faith. That right now our hope anchors us. Right now the hope of seeing his face, the hope of knowing him, the hope of being with him. It anchors our soul. But in that day we shall not be a people of hope anymore. We shall be a people of reality. It will be Real. We will fully realize that for which we were saved. Paul says in that day, I've not yet comprehended that for which I have been comprehended, but this is what I do, forgetting the things that are behind me. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. That's in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, I was apprehended for something, and I've not yet attained that. Well, in that day, the attainment will take place. We'll no longer need faith. We'll no longer need hope. But you know what we'll have throughout all of eternity? We'll have love. Because his spirit has shed abroad his love in our hearts. And we will love one another. The father's love will radiate that city. The son's love will radiate that city. The spirit's love will shine throughout our heart to one another. And love will endure forever. You know, 200 years ago, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher, was asked, what makes the church like heaven? And in a sermon, he presented this thesis, that what makes the church 
like heaven is this. It's love. It's love. It's love for one another. It's love for God. It's love for Christ. It's love for the gospel. And when I think of 1 Corinthians 13, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, one of the most lovely chapters in the Bible. One of the reasons I love it so much is because when I read the description of love, I see a picture and I see a portrait of Jesus. Because Jesus is the embodiment of love. You see, when I look at Jesus, I see someone who is patient. Someone who is kind. He is not one who envies or one who boasts. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He does not insist on his own way. And he's not irritable and he is not resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices in the truth. And trust me, as one who knows, he bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And he never fails. (laughs) Ever fails. Here's the question we have this morning. As we look at this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and we acknowledge that it is an accurate description of biblical love and we can even see that it is a beautiful portrait of Jesus. The question I have for me and you this morning is, is 1 Corinthians 13 a good description of me? Is it a good description of you? When you read 1 Corinthians 13, can you say, yes, that's me? Maybe there's some of us here this morning that you brought a tally sheet to church with you. Oh, it's not tucked in your Bible. It's, it's, it's hidden deeper inside your heart. You've got the person's name written in it. You've got a check beside of it. You'll never forget it. You begrudge them. You hold something against them. And you want to take it to your grave. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds you today love is not resentful. It doesn't keep a tally sheet. Love forgives. Maybe there's someone here today and you walked in and you're, you're arrogant and you're boastful and sometimes you can just be flat out rude to people because you're living a self-centered life. 1 Corinthians 13 says that's not the way of love. No, love does not behave itself in this manner. It is not rude. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It's humble. Maybe you just want to give up and quit and say, what's the use? I'm done. No, 1 Corinthians 13 says, no, wait a minute. Love doesn't quit. Love never fails. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, Brother Justin, my love life really needs to be straightened out. I need to get my heart in line with 1 Corinthians 13, and I need to know what I need to do. Well, here's what we all need to do. We need to look at these areas where our heart and the description of love do not mesh. And then we need to repent of our sins. We need to repent of our attitudes, repent of our rudeness, repent of our unforgiveness, repent of all of that, and say, here, Lord, here is my heart. I want to be a loving person because I know the more like love I am, 
the more like you I will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you.